0: we continue our lesson from last week with Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 15. As the apostles died off and the written New Testament was completed, they were replaced by evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Once the fullness of the doctrine of ecclesiology was unfolded, every church had elders and deacons. Acts 6 verses one through seven, marks the beginning of the office of deacon in the church. The remainder of this chapter focuses mainly on one chosen deacon, Stephen. Please listen to Pastor Jim as he delivers today's portion of this week's message entitled, The Infant Church Takes First Steps, part two. Now it's our joy to open God's word. I invite you please to Acts chapter 6. And as we study this unique book, one-of-a-kind book in the Word of God, we're studying the historical record of the greatest spiritual transition in history. Jesus announced the arrival of the new covenant that night before He went to the cross. And then on the cross, remember, He triumphantly announced it is finished. He'd finished satisfying the wrath of God for all who would believe. At that moment, God ripped the veil over the entrance of the Holy of Holies in two from top to bottom, and that was to symbolize that the ministry of the temple was complete for that, at that time. And now access was directly into the presence of God. God. Well, from then on until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed, everything that happened in that temple was a giant spiritual lame duck session. The old covenant is closed. The new covenant is here. Well, that was a transition. It didn't just all happen at once. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to over 500 people after His resurrection. He gave instructions to the apostles. He ascended to the Father. And then He sent the Holy Spirit just as He had promised multiple times. And the era of the new covenant burst to life. Acts is the record of approximately the first three decades of that new era. Now through five chapters, we've seen about 15 to 20,000 people turn to Christ. They meet daily in the temple as often as they can. They meet in homes. They they share all aspects of a joyous new life together. And remember, many of these people weren't from Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem for the Pilgrim Feast of, the, uh, of Pentecost. And so this is a, a massive thing that's going on with these, these thousands of people celebrating this new life in Christ. Well, the unbelieving leaders of the Jews are furious. We've already seen they, they threw Peter and John in jail over the, overnight. <laughs> it didn't do any good. The gospel spread even faster as soon as they released them. Then Satan concocted an attack on the Christians by manipulating a prominent husband and wife who were generous donors to lie about what they had done, and they were struck dead in front of everyone. People were shocked, but they were also sobered to the holiness of God, and the gospel kept spreading even more. Then the the Sanhedrin that... Leaders, leaders of the Jews, primarily the high priests, they threw all the apostles in jail, but the apostles refused to back down. And following the, the famous advice of a rabbi named Gamaliel, they decided that since they really haven't done anything illegal, we're going to let them go free again, but they flogged them first. Okay, well, we don't find any fault in you. We're just going to beat you to, almost to the edge of death and then let you go. And the gospel continued to spread. That brings us to chapter 6. And that's when we see this new group begin to be organized by anything other than the direct oversight of the apostles. Now there's 120 people in that first upper room and then, you know, the preaching of Peter and after the Holy Spirit comes and, and 3,000 people believe. That's a, that's a lot to cover for 12 guys. Well now it's more like 15,000, 20,000 people. And when we stuck our toes in this chapter last time, I, I began to make the case for you that this is the beginning of the development of the church, the body of Christ. This is the, this is the new thing. So I made the case for you that you want to be a member of this, the, the, the case for church membership. Some people say church membership isn't in the Bible. Well, if you skip the whole book of Acts and everything from there on, no, it's not. There's no passage that says you must be a member of a local church but in Christ we are members of one another and look at what they did as this first group blossomed. They kept records. They counted people. They knew who was in and who was out. They knew people's marital status. They knew everyone's um, uh, ethnicities and all the subtleties of that because they'd come from all over the Roman Empire. They... They knew the native languages of the people that were there. They, they copiously took care of one another, even to the point of some of the locals selling property to raise the money to take care of needs as they arose from those who were from, from out of town. That was amazing in light of how many people there were there. They sought to rigorously care for the most needy, and that tended to focus on the widows. And that's what touched off the situation that is the focus of this chapter, So, as I urged last time, we're seeing the pattern developing. It it is vitally important for every Christian to be as overtly attached to the local church as possible. We call that concept church membership. Uh, To shy away from being openly identified with a local church is to say, I don't want to be known for the one thing that Jesus is doing on earth. Which is building his church. We need to be committed visibly, vocally, outwardly, obviously, as in Christ and belonging to each other. If you were to fast forward about 30 years from what we're studying right now, uh, this group that we've met in Acts uh, 1 through 5, that had been made up at that time completely of those who were Jews. It had grown and encompassed then not only those who were in Jerusalem, but those who were in Judea, the surrounding area, and then Samaria, which the Jews hated, Samaritans, and then the Gentiles, and they had nothing to do with Gentiles. But now it's grown, or by 30 years from now, it's grown like crazy. Now it's more Gentiles than Jews. And once Gentiles became a part of the mix, God raised up a special additional apostle, to assemble teams to take the gospel primarily to Gentiles. And we're going to see about half or more of the book of Acts devoted to that. Now, churches in every place where the gospel went were led not by apostles. There were only 12 of them. So Paul came along and there, was a, and there was a 13th one, but there is no such thing as apostolic succession beyond that. That group died out. And all of those uh, <laughs> flocks of God's people around the world were led by um, shepherds of the flock. And the word uh, pastor is simply the Latin word for shepherd. So pastors or shepherds of the flock, and they were also known as elders or overseers. In every local church, there was always a plurality of The elders. And as the apostles died off and the written New Testament was completed, the leadership of the apostles and the prophets, which we're seeing in early Acts, uh, was replaced by the leadership of evangelists or missionaries, and what Ephesians 4 calls pastors and teachers. So, the study of all this stuff, the development of how the church, the body of Christ, the capital C church, is to be organized, is the, the doctrine of ecclesiology. That's the fancy word for the doctrine of the church. Acts 6 is the first part of the progressive revelation of ecclesiology. Now, progressive revelation is an important concept. We, see it, we say it applies to the whole Bible. If you had the book of Genesis and you only had the book of Genesis, every single thing you had would be with the Word of God. But it wouldn't be the whole Word of God. The Bible progresses from incomplete to complete. Well, even within the Bible, we have the progressive revelation of the church. It starts here, this first step of organization beyond the apostles, and then it becomes more fully developed. Not surprisingly... Most of ecclesiology was unveiled through the writings of Paul and Peter. Consider a couple of uh, scriptures that, that just touch on that. We'll say more as we get into later chapters when we have to cross-reference things that Paul wrote. But Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Just in his introduction to that letter in the address line, he says, oh, by the way, under the overseers and the deacons. Those are the two offices that will come to be the the leaders of the church for all time. Overseers is one of three words that's used in the New Testament for the shepherds of the flock. The other two are elders and pastors. Um, They were and they are the two groups of the leaders in the church, elders and deacons, or overseers and deacons. Now, once the fullness of the doctrine of ecclesiology was unfolded, every church had its own elders and deacons. First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 contain the, the lists of the biblical character qualities that are required to recognize who is an elder. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's an almost identical list for deacons. The main difference between the two, uh, those two offices, is that the elders are where the buck stops, if you will. They are the leaders in soul care and in preaching and teaching. Hebrews 13 says we will give an account for the souls of the, that are entrusted to us. The deacons are primarily assisting the elders and taking charge of hands-on ministries. Elders and deacons work closely together uh, as a, and, and as a team, but that's the distinction.